Um, our second reading uh, this morning, it's in your bulletin, but I'm going to tag uh, one more verse at the end. Uh, this is a long reading this morning. I'm picking up where Jordan left off, and uh, you know we're continuing our uh, sermon series through the Acts of the Apostles. And I have a really long reading uh, this time because it's a long uh, scene. Okay, so uh, what Jordan gave us was uh, the kind of the hubbub that led to the arrest of the Apostle Paul. Uh, this is actually the beginning of the end for the Apostle Paul. This is the arrest that ultimately leads to his beheading uh, in Rome. It's going to take a while for him to get there, but this is this is where it starts. He falls into the hands uh, of the officials, uh, and it begins here. So uh, we have the, the hubbub leading up to the arrest, and then we have this speech that the Apostle Paul uh, gives to the people, which is what I'm going to preach on uh, And so that's why we're reading so much this morning. Plus, I'm going to read one more verse which is not in your bulletins. Now, there are pew, there are pew uh, Bibles around you. Maybe you've got your own Bible with you. All of you have got electronic devices so you can also see the closing verse which is verse 22 uh, in chapter 22. So let me just begin with this reading. I will allow you to remain seated as long as your hearts are reverent as we read the word of God this morning. Hear the word of God. When the soldiers were ready to take Paul into the army building, he asked the commander, Can I say something to you? The commander said, Oh, you speak Greek. Then you're not the man I thought you were. I thought you were the Egyptian who started some trouble against the government not long ago and led 4,000 terrorists out to the desert. Paul said, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in the country of Cilicia. I'm a citizen of that important city. Please, let me speak to the people. The commander told Paul he could speak. So he stood on the steps and waved his hands so that the people would be quiet The people became quiet, and Paul spoke to them in Aramaic. Paul said, My brothers and fathers, listen to me. I will make my defense to you. When the Jews heard Paul speaking Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in the country of Cilicia. I grew up in this city. I was a student of Gamaliel, who carefully taught me everything about the law of our fathers. I was very serious about serving God, the same as all of you here today. I persecuted the people who followed the way. Some of them were killed because of me. I arrested men and women and put them in jail. The high priest and the whole council of older Jewish leaders can tell you that this is true. One time, these leaders gave me some letters. The letters were to the Jewish brothers in the city of Damascus. I was going there to arrest the followers of Jesus and bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment. But something happened to me on my way to Damascus. It was about noon when I came close to Damascus. Suddenly, a bright light from heaven shone all around me. I fell to the ground And heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I asked, who are you, Lord? The voice said, 
I am Jesus from Nazareth, the one you were persecuting. The men who were with me did not understand the voice, but they saw the light. I said, what shall I do, Lord? The Lord answered, get up and go to Damascus. There you will be told all that I have planned for you to do. I could not see because of the bright light had had made me blind, so the men led me to Damascus. In Damascus, a man named Ananias came to me. He was a man who was devoted to God and obeyed the law of Moses. All the Jews who lived there respected him. He came to me and said, Saul, my brother, look up and see again. Immediately I was able to see him. Ananias told him, the God of our fathers chose you long ago to know his plan. He chose you to see the righteous one and to hear words from him. You will be his witness to all people. You will tell them what you have seen and heard. Now, don't wait any longer. Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, trusting in Jesus to save you. Later, I came back to Jerusalem. I was praying in the temple area, and I saw a vision. I saw Jesus, and he said to me, Hurry and leave Jerusalem now. The people here will not accept the truth. You tell them about me. I said, But Lord, the people know that I was the one who put the believers in jail and beat them. I went through all the synagogues to find and arrest the people who believe in you, The people also know that I was there when Stephen, your witness, was killed. I stood there and agreed that they should kill him. I even held the coats of the men who were killing him. But Jesus said to me, leave now. I will send you far away to the non-Jewish people. And now the verse that's not in your bulletin, but is in the text The people stopped listening to Paul when he said this last thing. They all shouted, get rid of this man. He does not deserve to live. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we ask for your help uh, this morning as we gather around your word, as we uh, seek to understand Uh, what it is that you would have us know. I thank you for the privilege um, of having your word. We thank you for causing it to be written down for us, to be preserved for us through all of these centuries. Uh, We pray now that you send us your Holy Spirit, and we pray that you speak a word to us individually. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to do this morning is... I want to begin at the end of this passage and sort of work backwards uh, through this uh, story. And I want to close uh, this sermon with a conversation about um, besetting sins or signature sins. And I want to talk about temptation uh, and sin in the life of Paul. But first I want to Begin with where this passage ends. Verse 22 says, the people stopped listening when Paul 
said this thing. Well, now what he had said was, is that, that Jesus had said to him, leave Jerusalem now, I'm going to send you to the non-Jewish people. Paul had been there on the steps of a public building addressing a huge crowd, a crowd that had, was losing their mind and, you know, that was, was threatening to kill him. He had been rescued by the Roman soldiers from a lynch mob. And he's addressing these people respectfully. He calls them fathers and brothers. He's addressing them. He's talking about his own testimony. He's talking about things that they may have known about him, about his life's history, about what he believed in, about the common points that they held together as Jews. And then he gets to the, and they're listening respectfully, but then he gets to this one line, leave now, I will send you far away to the non-Jewish people, and the ears close, and they lose their minds. There comes a point when we all stop listening. There comes a point where we can't listen anymore. I'm a firm believer that every single person is, in their own special way, a kind of fundamentalist. There are certain principles which are non-negotiable with them. And when you say something that violates that principle, the ears are simply stopped. These Jews were willing to listen to Brother Paul talk about a lot of stuff. Maybe some of it was challenging. But he comes to this one point, oh, and I'm going to bring this message off to people who are not Jews, and that's it. The ears are closed. No more. Let's just kill this guy. We've heard enough. I think all of us have our own version of fundamentalism. All of us have certain non-negotiable principles on which we stand. Maybe those principles are different from your neighbors. Now, we live in a funny age. We live in an age that's been characterized as postmodern. Postmodernists like to think of themselves as anti-fundamentalists. You know, fundamentalists are those people who believe that there are absolute truths. And postmodern people believe that there are no absolute truths. They believe that all knowledge is simply a social construct. All right, so... In some ways, postmodernism is the antithesis to fundamentalism, but I think my principle holds true that all people at bottom still are fundamentalists because I find in the postmodern spirit a willingness to believe absolutely that there's no absolute truth. A willingness to believe that all knowledge is socially constructed except the doctrine that all knowledge is socially constructed. I think all people at bottom are fundamentalists. There are certain principles that they hold to, certain axioms on which they are not going to budge. I don't think that's a problem. I think that's just an empirical reality of how the human creature works. It does raise the question of how it is that we're going to have a conversation with people who are a different kind of fundamentalist than we are. I'm a fundamentalist. And I'm out in the marketplace last 
Well, I guess that was yesterday, on Saturday, and I run into another fundamentalist. He's a fundamentalist who doesn't go to church. He believes absolutely I'm not going to church. This is crazy. And I'm having a conversation with this non-church-going fundamentalist who's telling me the story of how he had been raised Catholic but had had a bad experience in the Catholic Church, and therefore, absolutely, there was no way he was going to go to church. How does one fundamentalist have a conversation with another fundamentalist? I think Brother Paul gives us a little insight into this, how we can have a conversation across these divides that seem so big. We see it in Paul's procedure. There are kind of two steps to this. The number one step in having a conversation with someone who fundamentally disagrees with you is to retreat to where you have common ground. Hey, look, we're all humans. And there's some point at which we agree. There's something that we agree upon. And so Brother Paul, in his conversation with Jews or with Gentiles, always begins his talk with them at the place that they already have an agreement. Maybe you remember Paul's conversation in Athens. He's there with a bunch of uh, pagan polytheists. He's there with philosophers. He's in the Areopagus. And he's having a philosophical conversation with them, uh, presenting to them a monotheistic view, a particularistic view, a historical religion. And he does it by first quoting to them Greek poets. There's something that we agree on. Both you and I agree on what this Greek poet is saying. So let's begin there. And then let's begin to build bridges from that point. There's something that we agree on. Let's scaffold from that point. Let's build a bridge from that point. Paul does the same thing with the Jews. I mean, obviously he is a Jew. In this conversation that he's having, well, it's actually a speech that he's having from the steps of this government building. He's talking about his Jewish credentials. He's presenting uh, his uh, Jewish uh, 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 bona fides. You recall that in his preaching that we've seen already uh, in the Acts of the Apostles, when Paul preaches to the Jews, he preaches to them out of Jewish scripture. It's a common ground that they have. We can have a conversation with people that we fundamentally disagree with by beginning humbly and figuring out what do we have in common with this person. And then let's build on that. So the first way to have a conversation with a fundamentalist who's a different brand of fundamentalist than you, you are a fundamentalist, is to find common ground. The second, oh, but let me say this about that. Some of you might be worried. Some of you of a certain stripe, some of you fundamentalists of a certain stripe might have a worry about that. Finding common ground and building bridges is not the same as being compromised in your faith. Okay, I want to be clear about that. You can have common ground with people that you have a different faith with. You're not being compromised. You're not being assimilated. You're not being syncretic. You're not being acculturated. You're simply finding out what's the point of of contact there, okay? We can hold to what we, what we believe firmly, to what we believe uh, in our faith, while still finding common ground with people of different 
faiths. All right, so I just, I just want to lob that one out there. Look, I mean, the gospel is different from every other uh, religion that the world uh, preaches. And the gospel alone is correct, all right? But that doesn't mean that we don't have common ground with other people. So th- finding common ground is, is the, f- the first thing that Paul does. The second thing that Paul does is Paul gets personal. And he gets very concrete and specific. A lot of times when we have our arguments with each other, we're way up in the stratosphere of, you know, theoretical thinking. Okay? Ideological tempers have a way of flaring when ideology meets ideology, but they cool when person meets person. Okay? We have come through a very rough patch in the United States in this past year and a half, and it's because people have not been talking to people, but ideologies have been hitting ideologies. I want to warn you about that. We had some trouble here in the church on that, all right, where people stopped seeing people and people began to see other individuals as representative of some ideology that they had heard some talking head on television tell them was, you know, out of the pit of hell, all right? Ideologies have a way of conflicting in, uh, without resolution, but people can meet people, and Paul gets personal. Paul begins to tell his story. Paul begins to get really specific. He dispenses with the slogans and the bumper stickers, and he talks about his personal experience. Now, why does he do that? Well, he does it because he loves these people. He wants to figure out any way possible to get through to as many people as possible. He loves Christ. He wants to uh, increase the number of people who are singing the praises of Christ. So he's going to use any technique possible to help convince them of what he knows is true. All right? That means that there are times when he abandons the ideology and he gets down to the personal level. Now, Paul's a theologian. Let's make no mistake about it. He's an intellectual. He's able to operate at that theological level. When you read the letters which are written to Christians, he's very theological. When you read read the sermons of him preaching to the world, he's very personal. All right? I think it's fair amongst ourselves to talk theologically, to wrestle with things theologically. But when we are out there in the world presenting the gospel to people who are on the road to hell, we need to abandon that ideology and start getting personal. Paul just tells his story. Now, it's a, it's a crazy story. It's a story of a man who understands Christianity in some sense... He understands it enough to persecute it. He's on the front lines of the people who are persecuting the church, which in that day was called the way. He's persecuting these people, persecuting them to death. Okay, so he's like a real fundamentalist. He actually kills people. And then he meets the Lord. Now, I don't know what you say about that. You'll notice that the... Uh, elders and the brothers who were listening to him give this talk from the steps of this public building, they don't make an exception to Paul's story that Jesus appeared to him. 
Paul is claiming, you know, I met the resurrected Jesus. I don't know if Paul met the pre-resurrected Jesus, but he met the resurrected Jesus. They don't argue with him about that. That's his personal experience. He's just telling what happened to him. All right? I think that's important. Your testimony is more potent than your theology. All right? There's a place for your theology. It's largely within the church. There's a place for it. But your testimony is what will open ears and open hearts to the possibility that, oh, maybe God is a little different from what I have experienced. All right. So Paul is willing to find common ground with people who have a different kind of fundamentalism than he has. Paul is willing to reach out to them by being personal. Now, why do we avoid the personal and why do we go to the theological? That's a question. Why would I rather talk about the doctrine of atonement than to talk about what a scumbag I was before I came to Christ? Your testimony does not make you look good. Your theology does. It makes you look smart. Your testimony reveals that you were lost without hope until Christ came to you and saved you. Alright? So, getting personal requires humility. Alright? And a lot of times we like to come out swinging because we're proud and we're just going to devastate the enemy with our clever arguments and prove to them how wrong they are and how right we are. One of the, my favorite stories in the Bible is a story of a blind man being healed. He's never seen. He gets healed. And there's a big commotion in the city. And the religious leaders are upset uh, because Jesus has done this healing. And they call the blind man in. Well, he's not the blind man, the former blind man in. The man who formerly was blind. They, they, they call him in and they start asking him questions about, uh, theological questions about the person who healed him. And you remember what his answer is. His answer is, I don't know. But what I do know is, I once was blind, but now I see. That's your testimony. Alright? You don't have to prove the nature and the identity of Jesus. You don't have to give a doctrine of the Trinity to proclaim the gospel to other people. But you do need to be willing to be uh, vulnerable and humble enough to share your story. All of us who are in Christ don't deserve to be in Christ. All right? None of us are in this church because we're better than the people who are outside of this church. Right? We're not. Okay, I'm not even convinced that Christians sin less than non-Christians. They sin differently. They sin with a twinge of conscience. 
A little bit of guilt feelings about it. I mean, before, you know, I sinned boldly. Now I sin. And Christ calls me to repentance. So two ways for a fundamentalist to have a conversation with a fundamentalist. Find the common ground. You've got common ground with somebody, anybody. If you're, they're, they're living on this planet, there's something you've got in common with them. Find that common ground. And second, be willing to be personal and to be specific. All right. I want to talk about that. Now, I want to talk about it. I want to talk about a whole other thing. I'm going to skip here really quick. I am watching that time because I don't want to stop the band from doing their important work. One of the things that has uh, troubled me uh, as we've been in these last couple of chapters of Acts, it has been Brother Paul's persistent pressure toward Jerusalem. Okay, so he's wrapping up his third missionary journey. He's done tremendous work. The gospel has gone out to like thousands and thousands of people. Okay, he's had real effect in real communities. One community, which made its living off of uh, the worship of a false god, was so transformed by Paul's presence there that the people who made the idols were upset because he was putting them out of business. Imagine that. Imagine if a church moved into a neighborhood and the sin declined so much that the sin union came after you. Paul was having a tremendous effect, and yet he had in his mind he was going to go back to Jerusalem. And I'm thinking, why? Like, you're doing great work. Jerusalem's, you know, they've got the heavyweights in Jerusalem. They don't need you preaching the gospel there. they got the brother of Jesus. James is the head of the church in Jerusalem. But Paul keeps pushing back to Jerusalem and people along the way in city after city say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you in Jerusalem. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And he keeps heading that way. And this has been kind of nagging at me. What's going on with brother Paul that he keeps pressing in to what looks like disaster? So I want to talk about temptation and sin. And if you don't mind, I want to spend a little time speculating on what was Paul's signature sin. Okay? I hope you're comfortable with the idea that Brother Paul was a sinner. All right. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that the characters in the Bible are the heroes of the Bible. No, the hero of the Bible is God, and he works with a bunch of scumbags. One of those scumbags was Brother Paul. He was a sinner. He was clear that he was a sinner. What was his, what was his besetting sin? There are a lot of sins that are mentioned in the uh, New Testament. So one list that's published, it lists about 90. 90 different sins that are, that are mentioned, uh, in the New Testament. Um, I, a number of years ago, uh, Ava and I were taking a, uh, a course, um, that's called Living for the King, uh, at New Life Presbyterian Church. And one of the exercises in this course is to, uh, meet with someone who knows you well and ask them, uh, about 
your signature sin. Like other people sort of know our sins better than we do ourselves. So go to your wife, go to your husband and ask them, so, you know, what do you see me doing again and again? What's the thing that I keep going back to again and again? Now, there are a lot of different ways to sin. There's a lot of different ways to, to miss the mark. And each one of, you know, each of us have our own favorite ways, all right? Your ways might be different from my ways, but I think all of us as, as humans have some kind of, uh, favorite sin. Scripture calls it a besetting sin. It's a certain pattern that, that we, we fall into. It's a good thing to think about. The reason it's important to identify your besetting sin is, is that it helps you set up, uh, like an early warning system. Okay, if you are prone to gossip, for example, if you see yourself, uh, you know, drifting toward some juicy little something that you want to share with someone else, well, you know that that's that's your favorite, your signature sin, and so you can sometimes check yourself early. Okay, this is why it's a good exercise to identify your own signature sin. You might want to think about that. If you have a pencil, you might want to write it down on your bulletin. Just don't leave it in the pew. Okay, my signature sin is this. All right, let's think about Paul. I think Paul was a proud man. I think he was proud of his Jewishness. He often boasts about his Jewishness. He he also then says, well, I'm not going to boast in this, but let me tell you about all these things that I'm not boasting in. He was proud of being a Pharisee. I also think that Paul had a sensitivity regarding his status and his dignity. Now, Paul's an unusual character. You and I are Christians because of the Apostle Paul. There wouldn't be a European church if it hadn't been for Paul. Okay, He is uh, responsible for more people coming to Christ than anyone else. And yet, you know, he kind of always was a second-class apostle. He's not one of the twelve. He wasn't with Jesus during the three years of Jesus' ministry. He's kind of a, you know, a Johnny come lately. And in his letters, you often see him defending his rights as an apostle. As though he's maybe not 100% convinced that he really has the right to be an apostle. Like he defends it a little, a little too much. He seems to be sensitive about his status and his dignity. You recall that, uh, um, wonderful story. It's, I think it's in Galatians chapter two, where Paul has a head to head conversation with Peter. Okay. Peter, the recognized leader of the church at that time. And Paul going at it head to head. This was over a question of, you know, Peter wasn't associating with, um, uh, with with Gentile Christians, you know, and so he was kind of being fake about it, you know. When when the Jews came around, he would separate himself from the Gentiles, and Paul calls him out on this. Well, Paul doesn't only call him out on this; Paul calls him out on this, and then tells stories about calling him out on this. All right, ah, you think Peter's great? Let me tell you about the time that I set Peter straight. I think there's a sensitivity there. Why is he going to Jerusalem? Well, he's going to Jerusalem not because Jerusalem needs to hear him preach. They've got the gospel there already presently. We know, we learned last week that there are already thousands of Christians living in Jerusalem. I don't know, I don't know what the population of the city of Jerusalem was at that time, but there are a lot of Christians. 
So there's no shortage of Christians. And, you know, uh, Jesus' own brother, James, is the head of the church. And so the witness, the gospel witness there is very, very clear. He's not coming to bring the gospel to a place that hasn't been evangelized before. He's coming bringing sacks and sacks of money. Okay? He's been taking a collection. Okay? He's planted all of these churches in wealthier, you know, Gentile areas. And he's, you know, he's instructed them about giving money for the poor brothers in Jerusalem. And now he's coming back home. Paul wasn't born in Jerusalem, but he was raised in Jerusalem. And he's coming back home with sacks of money. Can't you see what a good Jew I am? Can't you see how I'm really a great apostle? Can't you see how much I love you and have done for you? I think there was a desire in Paul's heart, perhaps an inordinate desire, to be recognized and to be admired and to be loved by his tribe. Look, we all love the adulation of the world. But somehow what we need most is the adulation of the people that we came up with. We all want to go back to our high school reunion. Beautiful and rich and successful. Alright? I was out in Missouri last month visiting the town that I grew up in. Without a doubt, I was more concerned about their opinion of me than I am about the opinion of people in Willow Grove, where I live now. What is it about that? Paul goes back home. He wants to be recognized and he wants to be honored by his own tribe. He's been successful in the provinces, but now he wants to bring the trophies, the trophies home. I think This was a besetting sin for the Apostle Paul. Not that it's my place to judge. But here's what I want to say also in that regard. Well, a couple of things. One is, is that God, God's providence works in spite of our actions and our sin. Okay, God has a plan for the Apostle Paul. God's plan for the Apostle Paul works out just fine. Okay. It may have been a sinful attitude in Paul's heart that leads him to Jerusalem, but that coming to Jerusalem ends up leading him to Rome, which ends up working out better for the whole world anyway. So I want to say that, that God even uses our mistakes. The other thing I want to say is is that uh, there is a difference between temptation and sin. Our when, when I talk about a besetting sin, I'm talking about an inclination uh, that we have towards certain things that God doesn't want us to do. And each one of us have our own kind of special things that we're inclined to, or we might say that we're more tempted to. There are some things that you're just not tempted to. There, there are some things that you that you just would never be tempted by. Okay, I'm not tempted by lima beans, all right? There is nothing that you can do that... You, I'm not, okay? Now, some of you might be. I'm not, all right? That's just not, that's not my vibe, all right? So, but each of us have our own points of temptation. And in each of our lives, we feel the tug of that temptation. 
We feel that pull of that, you know, this is kind of who I am and I'm always heading down this path and I'm feeling it again. What I want to point out is that the temptation and the sin are not the same thing. Let me put it a little more concretely. To be tempted is not the same as to sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. If you like, you know, it's not a sin to be tempted. All right. And so I want to say that to you because there are some of you who are beating yourself up over the temptations that you feel. Oh, I can't believe that I keep desiring that thing that, you know, that I know that I shouldn't desire. The temptation is not the problem. What we do with that temptation is a problem. Okay, Now, once we're tempted, we have a choice. I can either pursue that or, or I can say, no, no, thank you. All right? So I just want, I want to make that distinction between the desire and the pursuit of the desire. Again, I want to say something that I've already said, that the hero of Scripture, of course, is always God. And all of Scripture points to the glory of God. I love the Apostle Paul. I admire him. I, I, I honor him. For, for what it is that he did. I think in some ways he had shortcomings and, and shortfalls. And, and I think uh, maybe he had certain patterns or temptations in his own life, which, uh, you know, frankly led him to where he is in this situation in Jerusalem. He could have avoided this situation in Jerusalem. God, however, works even in those circumstances. Okay. Now, last week... I gave you an assignment for this week, namely to be thinking about, to be looking for what is it that God is doing in your life? Where is God showing up in your life? Okay, We know that God works through us. And I want to again encourage you to be thinking about that in this coming week. And maybe next week as we are meeting out of doors we can share some testimonies of where God has been uh, showing up in our lives. Okay, I mean, we have free will. We do act in this world. But God also is acting in us and through us. And so that's my charge to you uh, for this coming week. Let's pray. Father God, we honor you and we adore you and we thank you for your word. And um, Lord, I just pray that uh, that the gospel message that the Apostle Paul brought to so many people that uh, it would be deeply rooted in our hearts and that we would take great joy in knowing that uh, you have redeemed us and claimed us and known us uh, and made us your own. And I pray that that would fill us with joy and satisfaction in this life and prepare us for the life that's to come. I do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, thank you.